0: 91.3 KBCS, Music and Ideas, listener-supported radio from Bellevue College. Dr. Carla Fuller, Associate Professor of Biology at City University of New York and Project Lead for the National Human Genomic Research Institute, spoke at a Black Employees of Bellevue College Zoom event last week. Dr. Fuller shares her perspective on COVID-19 vaccinations. Uh, My name is Glenn Jackson. I'm the Director of High School Initiatives, and also a co-chair of the Black employees of Bellevue College, alongside with B.B. Oppojovo. And today we have our presentation by a friend and a former colleague, Dr. Carla Fuller, uh, it's great to have you back here among us and um, she's gonna do a presentation on the uh, COVID vaccine. It's good to be, be back. Uh, I'm so thankful to have the opportunity to talk to uh, my uh, old friends and all of you who are joining us today. But before we start, um, I'm gonna um, just make a, a brief acknowledgement for the land. We acknowledge the LANAP people the first inhabitants and caretakers of the unceded land of present day New Jersey and New York, on which the Lenni-Lana are situated and where many of us live and work. We acknowledge the Lanap people's painful history of genocide and forced removal, honor their ancestors and pay respects to their continued present and emerging presence. We acknowledge the history of enslaved African people in the New York, New Jersey area, which was the birthplace of slavery for this country's colonial history in 1626, We acknowledge that much of the economic prosperity that this city enjoys today was born out of labor and enslaved Africans. And we honor and respect their legacy, visible in the African Americans that continue to contribute to this city economically, educationally, artistically, and politically. So, um, just for those of you who don't know me, I'm Dr. Carla Fuller. I have a PhD from Purdue University, uh, Department of Cellular, Molecular, and Developmental Biology. My area of expertise is actually cancer genetics. Um, I currently teach at uh, Stella and Charles Gutman Community College, which is a part of the City University of New York, America's largest uh, public university system. Here, um, I do my best to increase the number of Black and Brown science and STEM-minded students to pursue their first their associates and then their bachelor's degree, hoping to contribute to an increased presence and a more diverse presence of scientists going forward. Um, I also um, am continuing my research um, in cancer genetics. Uh, My focus these days is on using gene editing techniques to uh, correct some natural cancer mutations. So I do this research with my students. Um, I am not a virologist. Um, However, I have used viruses extensively in my research. I am happy to not be doing virology work right now. It seems like a lot of like a high pressure environment, but I am happy to share information. Uh, Glenn, when Glenn asked me to come and talk today from a conversation that he and I were having online, and I feel that right now I am perfectly poised and have the privilege to have the gift of information. And I like to share that information um, with as many people who are willing to listen so that you can make informed decisions about, I'm coming to you today to talk to you to dispel some myths um, as much as I can, because I know there's a lot of information, but also a lot of misinformation out um, right now regarding COVID. So it is my hope today that by the end of this talk, um, you will feel a little more informed about what's going on and have the, the opportunity man to um, maybe to um, to ask questions of things that are are, are bugging you, um, I'm going to give a brief presentation, and then I hope to have most of the time spent on just addressing your questions um, and tending to that. Okay, so uh, let's dispel some myths about um, COVID-19 vaccinations, and maybe you'll learn a little bit about a little bit more about the um, COVID virus as we go. Okay, so what's special about this vaccine. um, It's it's receiving a lot of attention. Um, And part of that attention is because it's an mRNA vaccine and not the traditional um, adenoviral vaccine. So because of the way that many um, viruses interact with our body's cells, um, because of the way mRNA viruses interact with our body's cells, they really do resemble a real-life infection. So the current um, Uh, vaccine used by the ones that most of us um, might have or will soon have access to, the Moderna and the Pfizer version. Um, They take a snippet of mRNA, which is um, uh, part of the the genome, right, the genetic code for one of the little spiky proteins sticking on the outside of the coronavirus. So just um, taking a snapshot of just that little that little protein, they wrap it as you can see here in the lipid nanoparticle, which is a synthetic fat bubble really um, in short terms. And then, um, and then that is taken in through natural processes in the cell. So because the, um, the mRNA vaccine and it's in, in its little lipid nano envelope uh, are, are recognized just through the natural cellular processes This vaccine really does mimic a real infection. So this means that the immune response is more authentic and targeted towards the actual viral proteins rather than targeted toward the delivery vehicle, which we see sometimes in more traditional um, vaccines, which are made from uh, adenovirus or attenuated virus um, or snippets of live virus. Um, Another thing that's cool about mRNA vaccines is that they're really easy to make. Uh, and in the case of COVID-19, the, the genome for that virus is, was readily was made readily available very quickly um, and you know, published on a website, not waiting for peer review and um, going through the normal, those of you know, we all were academics here, we know how long it could take for a paper to come out. Uh, but in this case, the viral genome was, was already known, was shared widely. Um, so that made it a very short timeline to discovery of what pieces could be used or were uh, particularly interesting uh, and promising for making a vaccine. And then because that part happened so quickly, uh, it was able to advance to clinical trials pretty quickly. Um, So many viral antigens are known uh, with traditional vaccines. The target pathogens um, have to be produced in cell culture or fermentation-based or something that uses live cells in order to initiate enough of the virus to be generated, um, the vaccine to be generated to to enter the testing phase. This takes a lot of time, Um, weeks, um, certainly a a long stretch of days, sometimes weeks for one round of experiments. But since mRNA can basically be generated in a test tube in a couple of hours, the same testing process that might take a week or so for a traditional vaccine can be done in a couple of days. Uh, with an mRNA vaccine. And then um, I know another, uh, one of the things that people seem concerned about is that they don't want anything going into their DNA. Um, and I think that comes up because when we hear RNA, we automatically associate that with DNA. But, uh, um, you know, one of the things about the mRNA vaccine is that it doesn't come in contact with your DNA, it doesn't even go in the nucleus. It gets processed in the ribosome, so it sticks, stays um, out of your nucleus, away from your DNA. It only contains a little snippet that the immune system needs to recognize, which it creates, and then churns right back out. So it's, um, it's safe and can uh, eliminate some of these um, DNA-incorporating effects that I know uh, people are concerned about. So another question I hear often are what about side effects, right? So um, in general, vaccines are gonna produce an immune response. That's what we want them to do. Um, That is the way they are designed. That's how we know that they work. Uh, But for, um, and the same is true for the COVID vaccine. So this is similar to when you know, know, what I mean by uh, a general immune response um, is that you might feel like your body reacting to it. Um, The side effects are a sign though that the vaccine is working. The best thing about, the good thing about it though is that they're just temporary. If you have any noticeable side effects at all, so far, according to the data, they've been lasting one to two days um, in general, Um, maybe just a couple of hours it seems for most people. And symptoms are mild if you have any at all, Um, fever, chills, headache, maybe some lethargy or general tiredness, um, some pain and swelling at the injection site. So similar to the same things that we sign off for um, when we get the flu vaccine, Um, uh, or similar to when you know you're um, able to fight, like you feel like your body fighting off a cold or fighting off the flu, uh, but they're really short-lived. And then um, now we're starting to get reports back on second-dose side effects from the general population. Uh, We knew them already from the clinical trials. But according to reports from just everyday people like us, the second-dose side effects are similar, right? Either nothing at all, maybe they're mild at most. Maybe you have a fever or chills for a day or two, um, a little pain at the injection site. But again, similarly to what we deal with with the flu vaccine. I, I say all that to say, you know, con- if you're concerned about the side effects, which you have every right to be, that's, that's fine. And, you know, you can just kind of, maybe that makes you hyper aware of what's happening with your body at that time, but that's okay. I saw um, a quote from, uh, in a paper I was reading with my students, it said, we are willing to tolerate discomfort in other aspects of our life. Many people exercise and have muscle aches afterward or overeat and don't feel so great afterwards. You never say, I'm never going to exercise again or next time I won't eat too much. There are just many aspects of our lives where we need to be willing to make the trade-off, some degree of discomfort for a longer term gain. And I think this is um, with the death rate as it has been, the infection rate as it has been, what we're learning more and more about long-term lingering um, chronic illness associated with um, COVID infection, it's important to just keep that point in mind. Is it worth um, the potential to have a headache for a day if it keeps me alive? I I think we have to keep everything in perspective. Uh, All right. um, I don't know if you guys are like me, and at this point, I'm avoiding the news altogether, but just in case you are, I thought I'd put up the numbers. So this is data from yesterday. Um, we can see um, approaching two and a half million deaths um, in worldwide, um, getting towards half a million people dead in the United States. And then I looked up the data for Washington State and um, King County, not King Country, um, so, um, the um, yes, as of yesterday, four thousand seven hundred and thirty-nine people have passed away um, in Washington State, with um, more than a third of those being uh, from King County. So, to put this um, this information into context, um, one of the, I guess, my largest concern for my community. Um, which uh, where I live, we are a majority minority area um, in our city, we are majority minority. Um, so I, I know that um, I hear that um, that people of color are disproportionately affected by COVID. Um, I see that data. Um, I see it in my community. but. I wanted to get a kind of wrap my eyes around what does that really mean um, as part of making a case for people to seriously consider particularly in populations that are disproportionately affected or have disproportionately adverse effects to the virus. So I put this, um, I pulled that information just to to put it all in context. So in the US population, this is the breakdown Um, as of right now. 73% of this country identifies as white, um, 18% Hispanic, Latino, 12.7% African-Americans, 5.4% Asian-Americans, almost 1% indigenous Americans and 0.2% Asian Pacific Islanders. And then when you put this information in the context of COVID cases, right? These are people that, these are reported COVID cases, which um, the NIH said um, last week it's probably 10 times lower than actual numbers because some of us get COVID and we just do what, you know, we follow the regimen, um, but we don't go get tested and we don't see a doctor. And maybe we recover or maybe we go later, but as far as reported cases, we can see that um, that um, the Hispanic Latino group, um, African-American group, Asian-American group, indigenous American group, Asian Pacific Islander group, are all disproportionately affected according to their proportion in the population. So the dark orange bars is the percent of the US population and the light orange bars is the percent of uh, COVID cases reporting. And what's even crazier than that is if you look at the percent of deaths in the US, you can see that the African-American reported deaths that are COVID related jumps to, more than the percentage of African-Americans in the um, United States. And the same is true for our indigenous American brothers and sisters and um, you know our Asian Pacific Islander brothers and sisters. So, um, you know, although the, you know when you look at just the reported cases, it looks pretty bad. If you look at who's dying from COVID from any number of socioeconomic, medical um, insurance related, um, Whatever reasons, we can see the disproportionate effect that this has on this on these communities of color, and these are people that that are no, they're not here anymore. They're gone. Um, and just to look at that a different way, um, if we look at um, you know taking away the the proportion um, of the population. But if we just look at the raw numbers, we can see that our population of indigenous Americans, African-Americans, Asian Pacific Islanders um, are outpacing um, all other groups for reported deaths. And this information is through February 2nd. And we can see that as um, uh, some, you know, the, the, the count is going up. And this is terrifying for me because actual, the actual number of COVID deaths and COVID cases is going down, but we see that, it's, that it's not, that's not true for our communities of color. So the overall numbers are going down, but our communities are still being disproportionately affected because the death, the death rate continues to climb. So what are some of the misconceptions that those of us who are working with um, our communities are facing? Um, One, there's a lot of concern with how quickly the vaccine came to uh, be available to the public, um, which I'll talk about. And then uh, a big one, I think the most important one is medical mistrust. Uh, And this is um, a valid concern, particularly with communities of color, um, people of low socioeconomic backgrounds or histories with um, uh, poverty. Um, And then uh, another Uh, misconception is about the efficacy, right? So um, the vaccine, and if one is 95% efficient, one is 60% efficient, like is one better than the other? And so sometimes now we're seeing people are wanting to hold out um, and not take the vaccine that's available, but kind of hold out until they can, uh, are able to shop the marketplace. So I'll address that as well. I have this um, little infographic uh, about the COVID-19 vaccine development process. Um, And I just want to say right off the bat that vaccines are safe, okay? That's my, um, that is my bias, (laughs) okay? I think that vaccines are safe. Um, Okay, so in general, there's these um, two early stages in vaccine development. One is the, the first is the exploratory stage, This is when um, researchers are in the lab trying to analyze the the thing that's that's infectious, the virus or um, whatever it is that we wanna fight, Uh, trying to resolve the genome, looking for potential targets to create um, uh, vaccines or treatments or cures. That usually takes two to four years. That's for new discovery, meaning we don't know anything about that um, virus. Um, That was not the case for COVID. We, we did, this is a, a, a virus that has been studied. People have built their whole careers on studying COVID-19, it's not new. So we, we could skip um, that exploratory stage um, for the most part. Um, that's, that happened very quickly. And then it moves to the preclinical stage. So this is usually animal testing, usually takes about one to two years for new discovery. The way this virus works is so, um, um, it's, it's it, the, the effect of the virus uh, is so uh, robust. And because this is a global effort, instead of one company working very hard to, to do a study and track over a number of months and years, a bunch of labs, you know, this is a global effort. So everyone could, could replicate these same experiments and get the same amount of data that it would take a couple of years for, could get it very quickly. Um, after that, then um, if that looks promising, um, then the drug company or the lab or whoever would apply for a pre-approval for clinical trials. And this approval process takes about 30 days in the normal time. For COVID, this was slashed. So instead of things getting passed from this desk to desk to desk, they organized meetings so that people could come together and be review together to push it through a little bit more quickly. So it still went through the same process, still had all the right vetting. It's just cutting out those middle kind of dead air steps um, that are usually exist in between. Uh, and then, so once IND approval, uh, the IND application is approved, and I will say so far, um, there's been multiple companies that submit those. And as we know for right now, only four have met that approval in the United States. So it's not that everything, even with this abbreviated process, every, you know, things are not slipping through. Um, and then, so, Phase one trials um, can start. This is the first round of human testing, usually 20 to 100 subjects. This is just to make sure basically that the vaccine, whether it works or not, it's not gonna kill people when they test it, right? It's not gonna make them sick for other reasons. Um, For the COVID vaccine for Moderna, this happened um, in January and March of 2020. And for Pfizer, um, it, it started in May. And then phase two trials started. This is when you start to increase the pool of subjects. You look more closely at trying to figure out the proper dosage, um, the minimum dosage for maximum effectivity. Uh, Is it, can it, um, is it as effective in a shot as it is in an oral um, vaccine, that sort of stuff. And then phase three trials, which both Moderna and Pfizer entered in July, 2020 is large scale randomized double blind. So that means nobody, the doc, neither doctor nor um, patient knows if they're getting the vaccine or if they're getting the placebo. Uh, and for um, the COVID vaccine, this was 30,000 um, people as part of those phase three trials. So by the time, um, uh, after assuming the phase three trials go well, then you get approval and licensure um, from the FDA which includes on-site inspection, includes um, third-party testing like uh, with entities like CDC and NIH. Um, This usually takes 10 months to a year. Obviously it did not, it just took a couple of months for COVID. And then um, one of the things that shortened that, because usually after this 10 months of approval and licensure, then they start large scale manufacturing. But what Pfizer and Moderna said was screw it, let's just move on to the large scale manufacturing. And if it works out, and we get the approval, bam, we already have enough of this stuff to deploy. So that's why as soon as the FDA said this is safe for distribution, the rollout happened. Okay, There was no time in between approval and then the time it usually takes for large scale manufacturing. So this started early. Um, And then what we're seeing now is phase four trials. So these are some of the stuff you might be hearing in the news about um, maybe you don't need two doses. What's the maximum time you can go between doses? Um, so there's this lots of data gathering and monitoring, um, checking on people with this first and second dose side effects. You know what's happening in the general public, um, and does it does it um, still agree with what's happening in the uh, that happened in the clinical trials? So that's where we are um, now. And so these are optional follow up studies that. What it appears is happening is that um, are being reviewed to see if there is any way that we can get more people vaccinated um, rather than um, less. Moving to this part of the presentation, I do just want to check on the chat and see if I'm missing anything. I see this good conversation here. Okay, so I'm gonna answer that. Let's ask the question is, are the side effects the same for black people as they are for the general public, which is an excellent question. Um, I, I will talk about that after I talk about this um, and in, in, in my inclusion por- portion. Uh, Anecdotal reports that second dose side effects may be significantly worse. I've also heard that, but then when I was looking at the VAERS data um, to see, um, you know, just little check boxes. I, they really just have the data, mild, no, no symptoms, mild symptoms, which is like fever, chill, whatever, N- nothing lasting more than two days and severe symptoms, which means something happened and now I have to be hospitalized. Um, this e- Even the worst, the symptoms being worse, they're still mild. So maybe you didn't have, maybe for the initial dose, you just had some arm soreness, but the second dose you had fever and chills. So they are worse. I mean, I guess it's contextual, but um, still not still mild. Does everyone who gets the vaccine have to report side effects? Oh, that's a good question. So um, they don't. They the data is collected, but you're not come. I mean, you're asked, right? You should get a follow up um, from your wherever you receive. So my mom went to a clinic, so she got. Um, uh, a day, that same day, she got a uh, like a Google form survey. What are, you, how are your symptoms? And then she got one the next day. Um, but she could have, she filled it out. But I'm sure there's tons of people who are like, I'm fine, I'm not filling this out. Um, so, you know, the reporting that we're getting, the best um, information that we have about first and second dose side effects is from the clinical trials because we can't compel people to check in. Um, with their doctors after we can ask, but uh, people can't be forced to check in about their side effects. Um, One of the uh, things that I see a lot on um, social media and when I speak to my grandma's friends to try to get them to um, encourage them to take their vaccine uh, is um, correlations between uh, what's happening with the COVID vaccinations and with the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Um, and just in case um, you're not clear, I wanna be clear about what happened at the T- Tuskegee syphilis experiment because actually it turns out a lot of people weren't clear. And I think that's where some of the uh, misconception comes from. In So in 1932, the Public Health Service, which is an entity of the United States, well, was an entity of the United States government worked with the Tuskegee Institute to recruit and study um, the natural history of syphilis in hopes of justifying treatment programs um, for, for African-Americans. So it was called the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male. And this study back in 1932, initially involved 600 black men, mostly poor, mostly farmers. Uh, 399 of them had syphilis, 201 did not. Um, the study was conducted without the benefit of the patient's informed consent. So they, So the patients agreed to uh, they were promised uh, free health care, free um, a, a burial insurance policy, which is a red flag to me, um, and um, meals on the days that they came for their check-in. Um, but they weren't so the people who agreed agreed to give their blood in exchange for these things, but they were not informed about the study. Um, they, the, the researchers told the men they were being treated for bad blood or treated for the preventative for bad blood. And that's a local term at the time that was used to describe um, anything, syphilis, anemia, fatigue. If you had any kind of symptoms for anything, the researchers would say, oh, you sound like you have bad blood. You should join this this um, come to this clinic. But in truth, none of these men received the proper treatment needed to cure their illness. Um, they only got the free medical exams, the free meals, and the insurance um, they were promised. So the project was originally supposed to last six months, but in fact, it lasts for 40 years with the support of the CDC, with the support of the American Medical Association, and with the support of the National Medical Association. Um, And it was only stopped after it was exposed um, by journalists. Uh, All right, so... um, Then it went under panel review. The men were never given adequate treatment for their diseases. um, And penicillin was discovered as an appropriate treatment for syphilis in 1947, yet the study continued for another 20 years after that without the researchers offering syphilis, uh, um, offering penicillin to any of the men that they knew had syphilis. Um, So by the time the study was shut down, 28, uh, participants had died from syphilis, a hundred more had passed away from syphilis related complications. At least 40 spouses had been diagnosed with syphilis um, and it had been passed at birth to uh, um, 19 children. And that's just what has been reported. So, um, you know, there is a, it is a valid concern to have, to feel mistrust at the medical establishment, at scientific research, particularly in the climate that we're in, um, under the administration who was tasked with managing this um, last year, and it's you know it's not just the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. By now, we've all heard about Henrietta Lacks and the theft of her HeLa cells. We've all heard stories about forced sterilizations, um, you know, the um, lack of informed consent in prison research. Um, And because of that, there's low participation in clinical trials by African-Americans and other community of color. And then because of the lack of participation, there's really low education and outreach about a lot of the health things that are, um, health issues that plague this community. Uh, For, you know, diabetes as an example, only because it also disproportionately affects all those same um, ethnic groups that I mentioned before you can still find so much miseducation about how, pe- you know, how to treat diabetes, where diabetes, what it is, where it comes from. So, um, because of these past um, and not too far in the past issues, uh, people have been fighting through legal and educational and social activism to improve informed consent and inclusion in clinical trials, um, and we see the. Um, I can only speak for the COVID vaccine, but we can actually see the benefit of that because right away um, when the clinical uh, trials move to phase three, which is when you start to, you want your clinical trial to look like the representative population. And we started to see invitations for um, HBCUs um, to participate in, you know, student uh, targeting those populations, students, faculty, staff to participate. In vaccination trials, we started to see um, community um, medical marketing. I know Planned Parenthood had some specific messaging that they were sending to the communities that they serve. So we're starting to see the, at least for this one, because of the disproportionate effect that it has had and is having in communities of color, there was a concerted effort to make sure people understood that it's not compulsory, but you should take it, right? To, To be sure that people are included in um, the medical trials and in, in the clinical trials, and that people have access, which is something that I think we still need to um, work on. But for this case of the COVID vaccine, there was inclusion at many levels. We know that the woman who um, trailblazed this research was an African American woman. We know that communities of color were in, were um, included um, specifically in clinical trial information. We know that there's, um, we are as a, you know, a community are doing better about education and awareness and outreach. Access, we'll see, hardly anybody has access right now, but we'll see um, how the new federal um, approach is to make sure that the people who need it most get access to it first. So um, to answer your question, Brother Ron, um, I think that it is, I, I just wanna say, it's a valid question in my own, um, uh, postdoctoral research. I was looking at, um, um, different, uh, responses to, uh, chemotherapy drugs between, um, uh, people who are subequatorial and people who uh, are not, and there are differences. However, it seems that, um, there's two responses to your question. One, everyone seems to be responding pretty much the same, except for people who have um, uh, pre-consisting conditions. That's the second part. The issue is that people who are black, brown, our Asian Pacific Island um, brothers and sisters are indigenous populations. Those people are disproportionately affected by the secondary conditions that make catching COVID more difficult for them to survive and to make treatment more difficult. So um, there are some disparities in outcomes, but it's because of these underlying other conditions that have been ignored for so long. However, the vaccination program is effective for everybody and side effects um, seem to be the same across the population. Oh. All right, so the last um, point I wanted to make was about effective. So how effective is effective? And in order to understand this, you have to understand uh, what effective means um, as far as biotech with the mRNA vaccine. So um, the Moderna vaccine is said to be 94% effective, Pfizer vaccine, 95% effective, and Johnson & Johnson, which is in phase three trials right now is said to be 66% um, effective. Um, so. When we talk about efficacy, we, we really mean the percent fewer cases. So if something's ninety four percent effective, that means five uh, you know ninety four people are ninety four percent more likely to not get it than um, you know than the other five percent of people who are likely to get it. All right, and then this is based on protection against symptoms and or protection against infections. It depends on who you ask, and what they are claiming that their vaccination does. So what's the difference between these vaccines? So um, Moderna and Pfizer, they say that they, they are considering get the vaccine effective if a person who receives it has one symptom or no symptoms and a negative COVID test. For Johnson and Johnson, which is a, um, they are uh, testing a single shot vaccine right now. They say um, this a little bit uh, more fluid, no major symptoms only one mild symptom and a negative COVID-19 test. So what does this mean? Um, that all three are hundred percent effective at preventing severe disease. so hospitalizations are drastically reduced even if you do manage to catch uh, to be infected with COVID-19 while you've had the vaccine. Severe disease, hundred percent prevent it. Death, 100% prevent it. So far, um, nobody who's had the vaccine has needed, uh, I shouldn't say nobody, I just read about um, one um, special case that was so special it, it had its own publication. But in general, the, um, all three of these vaccines will prevent you from being hospitalized due to COVID symptoms. So that means your COVID symptoms remain mild um, or and certainly will prevent you ha- um, dying from COVID. So um, this is the most effective vaccine ever generated. It doesn't matter if it's the one that's only 60, 66% effective or the one that's 94% effective. Um, and I should say for the Johnson & Johnson, 60, the 66% means that 66% of the people have no major symptoms, maybe one mild symptom and a negative test. So others may have had two mild symptoms, right? Anything more than one Um, They weren't including in their uh, efficacy uh, count. So um, they're still all very good. And with that, I will conclude um, the presentation portion. And I'm just going to go back to um, the chat and see lots of discussion about um, side effects ah, is the vaccine good for variants? We don't know yet. That's a good question. Um, not enough of the population is vaccinated to be able to, and testing, everybody who tests positive for COVID is not getting, they're not testing to see if it's one of the variants. So we actually don't even know how prevalent those variants are um, in our population. Um, and so we're just not doing the, the right kind of testing to know um, what that what those variants mean for COVID vaccine, but that's a good question. I always think about that kind of stuff because I remember uh, 2010 flu shot because the one I got it was you know the variant the most popular variant or most common variant changed and I had to go get a booster. So I do think I wonder about that. Does taking the vaccination mean one can return to normal habits before the pandemic? I would. I would err on the side of caution. We have to remember vaccines are, are personal protection, um, right? They don't, they, they protect you from others. They don't necessarily protect others from you. So even though you may not um, have the infection, you may, you may not be sick from the infection, you may have a negative COVID test. It doesn't necessarily mean that you couldn't pass it on, even you know your body was able to. Fight it, but it, it doesn't mean that you wouldn't be able to pass it on. So I think we'll be wearing masks for a long time, um, and I think we will see a little bit of a spike as people start to relax because of the vaccination rollout. We, I think, we'll see uh, a little spike before people um, are reminded that they still have to be be careful. And you know what? I'm I just want to say for the record, I think people who are skeptical because they don't trust the medical. I mean, it, this that is totally valid. Um, And you know, um, Megan Watson put in the chat that it wasn't long ago that we were lab tests, 50 years, not hundred years. I can show you reports from things that happened last year, okay? That were issues of um, skipped informed consent. Right right now the FDA has a process for, um, it's basically an exclusion um, and what it's supposed to be for is, it, let's say you are um, uh, in the sent to the emergency room. You're on your deathbed. You have a condition. It hasn't been treated, and just as you're on your way to the hospital, um, someone has a prospective treatment. It might save you, and then you know you can. So they can. Uh, you can get that exclusion in cases like that where we can. If you want to try this um, treatment. You're going to die definitely if you don't have it, but there's a chance that this treatment could could prolong your life. Do you want to try it? Um, and that's, you know, there's reasons that's beneficial. We have made many drug discoveries that way, particularly with cancer drugs. However, I just saw some data late last year that's still black and Latino people are disproportionately represented in those kinds of cases. So are they being targeted? Is it, a, it's, so, it's, it's not 50 years ago, it's still happening now, which why I think it's um, visible, important to me that the efforts made by uh, Moderna, Pfizer, NIH, CDC at reaching out to communities of color to be included in the clinical trials with everybody else with monitoring with good health care is so important um, as a model going forward uh, because it's still it's still a problem. So, who is not eligible? Some people, oh, uh, I'm so thank you um, for bringing that up. So, some people should not get it. And I know the people that I, my, my mom's friends, um, uh, heard immunocompromised and thought somehow correlated that with allergies and were like, well, I have really bad allergies, so I'm not going to take it because it says that it might give you an allergic reaction. And I already have a problem with allergic reactions. Um, so there are, there's a, there are a few specific types of immunocompromised cases where that are clearly studied and it's clear that those people should not get the vaccine. Um, so, um, you know, that's why I think if you have those kind of concerns, you should talk to your doctor and ask them because that information is available and we know what it is. Um, but also at the same time, to me, that's more reason why the rest of us definitely should get it because some people probably want it and can't get it because of their own health conditions. And we want to we can provide um, immunity to protect those people. The vaccine developed at, uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine eliminates carrier states. That's what the data says. Um, and as a matter of fact, I don't know if I think eventually we will get access to that vaccine, but I also think that the UK is holding on to that to make sure to take care of their own people for first, and then um, you know in a couple of years maybe um, it will be offered here. But it's not clear from what I've read that Moderna and Pfizer. I don't know if that wasn't included in their studies or if it wasn't included in the inf- in the information disseminated because it was uh, a negative. You know, it was it wasn't effective for that. But it will be interesting to see about the um, about the carrier state. Um, And then the last question, starting is uh, I hear they're starting trials with children. So um, I I don't have any info on that. Actually, I was listening to a webinar about that um, because as part of a a school board subcommittee that I'm on, um, that they're. Expecting vaccinations in children to roll out in September, but I know it's very difficult to um, per, to to get clinical trial participation in children. So um, I'm I don't know. I mean, th- that seems like a tight timeline. Um, I'm not sure. Also, you know, I I I guess the short answer is I don't have I don't have much information on that. Although the information I have is that it seems to be um, moving into, if, if they're expecting to have them, the rollout in September, it would at least be in phase two clinical trials already right now. Um, so I imagine that it would be the same issue that high risk kids would get it first. I know in our district, um, the focus is to get the teachers, the staff, the parents vaccinated. And then that way we don't have to depend on a vaccination for the kids for the you know um, um, because our schools are ter- shut down indefinitely. There's they're not even at this point promising to ever open <laughs> again. So um, I'm not sure that's that's that that remains to be seen. I'm interested in that because it's difficult um, to. It's yeah, it's just been difficult. I know with like some cancer studies, it's really hard to get a good, a, a big enough group of parents willing to allow their children to consent. And then there's a question of, the parents have to consent on behalf of the children, but what if the children don't want to? It's very tricky with um, children in clinical trials. Uh, can we still pass on the virus after getting vaccinated? Probably. Yes. I think you should assume that you can... Until we know for sure that Moderna, Pfizer and later Johnson and Johnson eliminates um, people being carriers, you should assume that you can pass it on, especially in, your, in the infectious period. So let's say you go to a, a baby shower um, and uh, you're vaccinated, but someone there has COVID, um, it is possible that you pick it up. Your body prevents you from getting it, but you can pass it on. So I think we have to be careful. That's why I think the, um, the mask, um, there'll, there'll be a federal mask mandate for a while. And if we look at um, other countries that have dealt with um, pandemics before, we, we know that their mask wearing really never stops, right? Once they, um, just in, in general. And so this might be a new, I mean, you know, Americans in masks, is not gonna ever be 100%, Not probably not ever gonna be 50%, but this might be a new way of our culture Um, That you see people with mask on, um, and then you know, for us, it would be a trigger. Oh, that person is maybe they're immunocompromised, or you know, maybe they were in a high risk situation and they're they're trying to protect me. This is this is something that we haven't seen in general. I know if if you know two years ago, if my if I came to work and a coworker had a mask on, I think they would probably had a cold or maybe the flu, Um, but it's it's rare. So maybe we'll see that a little bit more of that um, lately. Would masking of unvaccinated people be adequate for protecting them? Um, uh, maybe, probably, most likely, we would offer more protection than not masking. One thing that I should say, if you imagine that uh, when you have, um, let's, I'm gonna really simplify this just because I don't have any visuals and, um, and I can't use my body language properly, but let's say that it takes uh, 10, viral particles, um, just to infect. And it takes 20 to produce a mild symptom, um, to produce yeah, a symptom. Um, and so if you're unvaccinated and you're around one person and they're only putting out 10, no problem. But if you're around four people and they're each putting out 10, now you have 40 and that's, that's going to overwhelm any kind of, uh, mask, any kind of, um, Uh, natural immunity you might have. So it's really a concentration issue, which we have to remember um, with these, with vaccinations. It's a concentration issue as well. That was Dr. Carla Fuller, City University of New York Associate Professor of Biology and Project Lead for the National Human Genomic Research Institute. Special thanks to the Black employees of Bellevue College for this recording. Check out this interview and more local stories on KBCS.fm or subscribe to our podcast at Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify.